0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. People who sit on juries walk away saying, invariably, this was a tremendous experience in their lives, and they were honored to have done it, and they felt they played an important role in resolving an important dispute, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case, whatever the nature of the case is. People who are on juries totally get it, and they believe in the jury system. Please rise. Court is now session.
1: Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry, uh, along with Yvonne Godfrey, your co-host for this episode. Yvonne, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing good, Steve.
1: Well, I am uh, trying to, and it seems like this happens every time, trying to get over a little bit of a cold, so hopefully we sound okay.
2: Yeah, you don't sound too bad.
1: It's, uh, it's, the, it's what happens when you have uh, have young kids, I think, so. Um, well, uh, today, Yvonne, we have a fantastic, uh, um, uh, interviewee, a great trial lawyer from up in the Philadelphia, uh, area. Uh, his name is Shannon Spector. He's a partner at Klein Spector and, uh, Klein Inspector, with offices in Philadelphia, uh, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, uh, also in, P- in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, Shannon has had, uh. uh more than 200 verdicts in settlements in excess of a million dollars uh, notably was the case of white versus ford which shane and it sounds like you might have tried twice and in both instances got uh got uh, tremendous verdicts one of 153 million and then another of 52 million uh that was featured in the book bad break and uh and uh Shannon's verdicts are not limited to product liability or to uh, any specific type of, uh, of case. He's had uh, verdicts in medical malpractice, premises liability, uh, and trucking cases, product liability, all different types of areas. Uh, Shannon is a, uh, has been named the Product Liability Lawyer of the Year in Philadelphia in 2016. Uh, he's a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates uh, and has been named by the National Law Journal as one of the top 10 lawyers in Pennsylvania and uh, won the prestigious Musmano Award, uh, which is the highest honor by the Philadelphia Trial Lawyers Association, and uh, every year gets named to the top 10 uh, super lawyers for the state of Pennsylvania. And uh, from what I understand, uh, Shane, and you are also a big Phillies fan and have written on uh, the intersection between baseball and the law.
0: Uh. Yes, I have done that. And thank you. <laughs> thank you for your very generous introduction. The only, well, part, the only part about that that I'm going to say is definitely true is my interest in baseball.
1: <laughs> right. You know, I should also mention I saw that you are a championship level squash player, which is uh, which is also great.
0: <laughs> uh, well, that's I don't. Uh, that's pretty generous. I say <laughs> <laughs> I say, say that I that I am uh, a decent player, but. Uh, I'm probably a better lawyer than I have a squash player. Right,
1: right. Well, you're a tremendous lawyer and uh, you know, what you've done with your firm and what, and what you've done over your career uh, certainly counts for that. I mean, we could literally spend uh, hours talking about the number of different cases you've taken to verdict and the number of different tr- tremendous results uh, that you've gotten. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, the case of Goretzka versus West Penn Power Company. And this case was tried up in Allegheny County, uh, Pennsylvania, and you were representing uh, the family of Carrie Goretzka, her husband, uh, Michael, uh, her uh, two daughters, Chloe and Carrie, and her mother-in-law, Joanne. Uh, and unfortunately, Carrie suffered uh, from and what I've heard doing this podcast and just in my career, one of the most horrific deaths I've ever, uh, uh, you know, even heard of, where uh, essentially what happened is her family had just returned home from Walt Disney World. Uh, she was with her mother-in-law and her two daughters in the house and the power went out and they looked out the back window and saw that a power line had come down on some of the trees in the back and were on and was on fire. Uh, so she tried to call 911, but the, since the power was out, the telephones weren't working. So then she walked outside with her cell phone, which is the only place where she could get service and tried to call 911, uh, on three different occasions, uh, and then didn't come back, and uh, tragically, when uh, her mother-in-law, Joanne, went out to look for her, found her uh, body on fire, uh, wrapped up in the um, uh, power line that had fallen, uh, and it, actually, when she approached it, uh, approached uh, Carrie to try and help her, was thrown back by the force of the, of the electricity, and was burned herself. Uh, And um, as you did in your opening and closing, Shannon uh, just described this uh, essentially 45 minutes where uh, they weren't really able to give any help to uh, Carrie while she uh, was just being shocked and burned uh, the whole time. And then she uh, unfortunately passed away three days later. Uh, and I should say that, so the case was against West Penn power company who owned the power line and who had, who had installed it, uh, and was and the claim was that, uh, a splice that they had, uh, and you're going to have to explain all this to our listeners, but essentially, uh, the splice, which is what holds the power line up, uh, they hadn't cleaned the line properly before doing that. And it caused it to overheat and then break, uh, and then fall. Um, and the verdict that you, uh, received, uh, the compensatory portion of it was $48 million, uh, which was broken up between a wrongful death claim, a survival claim, and then the claims for emotional distress for uh, Joanne, Chloe, and Car- and uh, Carrie, and then the punitive damage, o- damage award of $61 million for a total verdict of $109 million, which I understand uh, was a record or is a record in Pennsylvania for a wrongful death case. Uh,
0: yes that's
1: true <laughs> well it's a it's a uh, uh a horrific uh um, set of facts and circumstances and um and you really just can't imagine uh what that family went through in witnessing that and then just uh dealing with that every day afterwards
2: there is there is i'm so excited to talk about this case because there i have so i have so many questions for you Shannon first of all about the facts of the, this case and the things you were able to uncover and we'll talk about the things sort of leading up to this incident. But um, I also thought it was really cool what you did. And, and I hope we can also spend some time talking about, you know, the different themes that you talked to the jury about, but that you also didn't um, shy away from some of the more complicated concepts. Like you talked to them about uh, Ray Sipsa in your, in your closing and, and, and things like that, that I thought were, Really cool. There's just so much to talk about in this case, aside from the fact that it has also made me terrified, and I'm constantly looking overhead now, everywhere that I walk and go.
0: <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, power lines fall more frequently than we might suspect, and we have handled a bunch of power line cases and are handling some right now, and. Regrettably, the power companies don't check their lines, and they know that a certain number are going to fall for a variety of reasons, and they hope nobody is underneath them when they fall, and then they hope that when the line falls, that it'll, it will de-energize itself when it hits the ground, and sometimes that doesn't happen either, and something horrible happens like this. And uh, it's then, of course, unspeakable. In this case, the line did not fall because of a weather event. The line fell on a clear, sunny day. And the line did not de-energize when it fell. It should have, but it did not. And so we had this horrible injury. And just to round out the excellent description of the facts that Steve provided to your, to your viewers, the, the, uh, the trees were on fire in the back and Carrie would have have known that from looking out her kitchen window. But she would not have had appreciation of the fact that the power line had fallen in the side yard as well, because it was not on the ground when she went out there. It had hung up in the trees. And so she was calling 911, as Steve said correctly, she called uh, on three occasions. And of course, we have phone records for that. And then the power line burned down through the trees and then fell on top of her her side yard. And that's what caused her death. And as Steve said, uh, she was, she was, uh, she received an electric shock of 7,200 volts for about 20 minutes before a rescue crew got the line off of her by using a stick to lift the line away from her. And then it was another 25 minutes before she was anesthetized. So she suffered this uh, 20 minutes of being electrocuted continuously with 7,200 volts and then another 25 minutes before she was rendered unconscious. She lived for three days, uh, sustained an amputation of her left arm and shoulder in an attempt to save her life and she passed away. Uh, three days after she was shot. So, as Steve did say, and as you noted also, it was a horrific set of facts, and this occurred in the presence of her mother-in-law, and it also occurred in the presence of her two daughters, uh, Chloe and Carly. Uh, So that was also horrific, as they had to witness this terrible injury to their daughter-in-law and their mother, respectively.
1: Yeah, and and uh, Shannon, if you can explain, because I don't think I did a very good job of it. The, the way you explained it at trial, which was great, it was basically the reason why this fell, you know, uh, on a clear sunny day, as you mentioned, uh, is because when they installed it, they hadn't used a wire brush to uh, to clean the, the lines, the power lines, when they installed them to this uh, splice, this device that holds them. Explain why, I mean, I think the average person might not know that that's important or why you need to do that, or it doesn't sound like that big a deal. Explain why that's so important.
0: Sure. So let's just go backward for a moment. And let me tell you that the line had fallen five years earlier. It had fallen in 2004. And when a power line falls, uh, of course, there's a lo- loss of a connection of the, of the wires, right? Of the, of the electric lines. It's called, called a conductor, though. The, the metal line is called a conductor in the, in the power line world. And when you put the line back up, you have to, of course, join it together to the line from the other side. And a splice is used, which is just a, it's a piece of plastic with an opening at both ends and uh, teeth that will hold the wire in place. And that permits uh, line to be reattached to, to each other and for power to flow and function. And so when they put the the line back up, they fail to use a wire brush to brush off uh, residue and the like from the line. And that has to occur because it has to sit cleanly within the splice. If it does not not sit cleanly in that manner, then over time with the the power running through it and being exposed to the elements and the like, the line will start to wear and corrode, and then eventually uh, it all fall apart. And when it falls apart, the line will fall down. And if the power line falls down and remains energized, and regrettably, that's a fact of life with power lines often as well, then anyone near the power line is subject to coming into contact with it and, and being seriously injured or killed, which is what happened here. And we took the depositions of the men who reinstalled the line in 2004, and of course they were called to testify at trial. And the testimony that they offered differed as between the two of them, but the essence of the testimony was that they had been instructed that you did not have to use a wire brush to clean the lines when they were put in place, that you could use something else like the back of a knife, notwithstanding the fact that in the manual for the power company it said you have to use a wire brush to clean the lines, and in the uh, owner's manual for the splices that were manufactured by a company called Hubble, it also said you have to wire brush the line when you attach it. And those and those uh, uh, documents, the, the policies and procedures of the power company, and also the owner's manual for the manufacturer of the splice says that if you don't wire brush the line, that can cause the line to fail, and that, can result in a line falling and, and of course, what happens after that. So so we did not have to prove, technically prove why the line fell because uh, as Yvonne referenced a few moments ago, this was a race IPSA case. The thing speaks for itself. A power line should not fall on a clear sunny day. If it does fall on a clear sunny day, then Ordinarily, it would have fallen because of a defect in the manner in which the line was installed andor maintained. So, we didn't have to prove that. But, my experience in trying race HIPSA cases is that the jury wants to hear an explanation. They don't want to just make an assumption, okay, well, it must have been some bad reason Uh, we'll find in favor of the plaintiff. They want to know why it fell. Uh, and I'm I'm always concerned that the defendant will be able to come forward with some explanation that may not involve neglect, and therefore I want to tell them why it happened and why it must have been negligent. So we went forward to prove that, and we proved it through the testimony, as I say, of alignment about the absence of wire brushing.
1: Ivan, what does every successful law firm need?
2: Really great lawyers like me.
1: That is exactly right. Really great (laughs) lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, They also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases?
2: I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website.
1: (laughs) Our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what digital law marketing does.
2: Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious.
1: I I definitely need some reputation management. (laughs) I'd like to find out exactly what that does.
2: We need to look into that one a bit more. (laughs)
1: Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital Law Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
2: I actually did have a question that was, that was picking up on um, what what Shannon was just talking about, and it, it specifically relates to um, this issue of the the manufacturer that you had come testify about, um, sort of how these things are supposed to be installed, and why why you're supposed to um, use the wire brush to clean the lines. Um, it specifically, when I when I read your opening, you mentioned that he was going to be there to testify, and the first thing I thought was this has got to be a tricky situation for this guy to be in testifying sort of against his customer. And and that was something that you picked up on in closing, telling the jury, like, this is a tough situation for this guy to be in, but he's telling you the things that you just talked about in terms of how you're supposed to install, um, how you're supposed to clean the lines. Um, Can you talk a little bit about sort of navigating that situation with with the manufacturer, how you how you figured out how that testimony was going to go, and how you sort of um, presented that to the jury.
0: Well, you are uh, very perceptive to point out that uh, the witness had a conflict of interest, because West Penn Power was a customer of Hubble, the manufacturer's places that they buy. And more generally, but perhaps even more importantly, of course, they're making splices for the entire industry. And the industry does not want to have verdicts against it in uh, power line failure cases. So I think that was a bit of an issue for the witness, uh, who was really the most knowledgeable person at Hubble about the way their splices function and why a line might come down. But he was a truth teller, and he knew the importance of uh, the oath and the importance of saying what happened. There There was another factor, which is that Hubble... Was sued by uh, West Penn Power. And in this were, case? Yeah, they weren't too happy about that. And <laughs> they were dropped before trial, but not before uh, Mr. Havlick had testified in deposition defending the product against the accusations of uh, defective design by West mm-hmm. Penn Power. So, uh, that may have colored his attitude about the company. Uh, and of course that was advantageous. So
1: was there evidence in the case that some, that by the defense, I guess that uh, something had happened with the splice that went wrong?
0: No, they okay. they couldn't put anything together and they dropped Hubble before trial. They didn't have a good theory to start with. and They didn't have a good theory to pursue and they dropped it. So they ended up with, with the worst of all worlds. They, they sued the company without much of a basis. They couldn't establish the case. They irritated the company. And Mr. Havlick, ended up being the witness, uh, and then they dropped the company, didn't get any money from them, and could not shift blame to manufacture this place. Worst <laughs> right. of all, worlds.
2: Well, and, and we're stuck with their defense of of blaming the deceased, which is just, I still don't understand.
0: Right. Yeah, that was, <laughs> an, that was another mistake uh, in the defense of the case. Uh, I understood the theory of it in the sense that Mrs. Goretzka saw the trees on fire in the back. Uh, she probably understood the power line had fallen back there. Uh, you might say, well, maybe she should be tracking with her eyes exactly where else the power line is. Uh, but she's not thinking about that. She's got her kids at home and her mother-in-law, the power's out. She's getting ready to cook dinner. She wants to get the power back on. She can't use the phone inside the house because the power's out. She goes to the side yard because that's the only place for cell reception in on her property. And she's busy calling 911. And yeah. then the power line comes down and lands on top of her. So it was. it was... To say that, it was, that the defense was thin would be an overstatement. <laughs> right. It should not have been attempted. The better way to defend the case is simply to admit liability right. and try to take the try to take the steam out of the the case of the plaintiff and say, look, we're terribly sorry about the line falling. We made a terrible mistake. Uh, Mrs. Gretzka passed away. You should award her fair compensation. That's the right way to defend the case. regrettably uh, sometimes defense counsel just seems to do it instinctively. I suppose they seek to try to interpose all possible defenses. No, it wasn't our fault. It was somebody else's fault. In this case, the manufacturer the splice. No, it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't their fault. Maybe it's the fault of the decedent because she was someplace she shouldn't have been. And uh, that, that tends to make the jury angrier and Uh, may cause the verdict to go up. Because in a case like this, the jury is looking for accountability and acceptance of accountability and remorse and recognition. These are human emotions that we can all understand. And when people do not accept responsibility for something like this, uh, a fact finder, someone who has to decide what ought to be an appropriate verdict is gonna factor that into their determinations of damages.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that during trial can be uh, frustrating because they should just accept responsibility, but at the end of the day, it helps your case and uh, and, and helps, uh, Im, you know, the jury uh, uh, get upset about it as they rightly should be. Um, and, I, and I saw in your closing how you, uh, you uh, you know, uh, basically told him that it was an immoral outrage that they wouldn't accept responsibility. And uh, that's just very powerful.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, and they could have even accepted responsibility in the closing. I mean, they could have said right. in the closing, look, we raised some concerns about what occurred here. We've heard all the evidence. You've heard the evidence. And we feel it's the right thing to come forward and say that we're dropping our claim of comparative negligence against Mrs. Goretzka, and you should award the family what's fair. And that would have been an okay thing to do at that point. But they stuck to their defense. And uh, I think that was unwise.
2: Well, and especially under the facts of this case, I, I kept reading this because I, like my mind could not get around this being the case, but that lines had fallen down, power lines had fallen down in the Goretzka's yard before. And and done damage to to their yard, but luckily no one was outside. But that basically this, this problem or a similar problem had occurred at the same spot years before, and nothing had changed. Can can you talk a little bit about how you, I get, I mean, I guess you could find that out from your clients, but sort of what you did to sort of connect the dots that this was happening, not just other places, but at this spot before?
0: Well, the line had fallen five years earlier, and Mike Goretzka, the husband of Carrie, had made a complaint to the power company. He'd done it in writing. He said he feared for his family's safety. He wanted an explanation as to why the power line fell. They never gave him an explanation. Uh, They simply stonewalled him. The lines had fallen in other places in the service area for West Penn Power the power company knew they had a problem. They knew the problem was in the way in which their lines are being installed, but they weren't being wire brushed. Uh, they should have brought the linemen in for a meeting and told them, hey, fellas, and I say fellas, because they happen to be, if not all men, almost all men. Right. And they should have said to them, hey, we're having problems with the lines falling, and it's because you guys aren't wire brushing the lines when you install them, and you gotta be sure to do that. But they didn't do that and lines continue to fall. So we had evidence not only the line falling on the Gretzka property, but also in other places. No one else had been injured, but of course, it's obvious that somebody could be injured or killed. So a lot went into that. May I raise a a related issue on this? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So so when when the line fell and Carrie Gretzka was killed, That had to be reported to the Public Utility Commission in Pennsylvania uh, under Pennsylvania state law. Whenever a power line falls and somebody is seriously injured or killed, there has to be a report to the Public Utility Commission. The same thing is doubtlessly true all across the country. The PUC sent letters to West Penn Power asking what had happened, why the line fell, and the like. And West Penn Power did not answer the letters substantively. And the matter lingered for a couple of years where the PUC was not vigorous in getting answers and West Penn Power put them off successfully. And I learned about that. And when I figured out what had happened with the power line and why it had fallen after I'd taken all these depositions, uh, I brought this to the attention of the news media in the Pittsburgh area, which had been following this tragedy, of course, because it was highly publicized when it occurred. And they publicized what we had found. And I also made a complaint to the news media about the fact that the PUC had not undertaken an investigation. And uh, they were embarrassed as well they should be. And then they brought a legal complaint against the power company, which was pending when my case went to trial. And I told the power company during trial that we would settle the case for appropriate financial compensation, but also on the condition that they went out and inspected all of their power lines, all 26,000 miles of power lines, and that they fixed those power lines where there were splices that were in danger of falling. And that can be determined even without going up uh, on a a lift. You can do it with, with an infrared Device where where you can stand on the ground or sit in the car and uh, shoot an infra- infrared gun at the line to see if they're burning hot, and uh, we could not agree on that kind of remediation, uh, and we could not ag- agree on financial compensation. We actually got pretty close on how much money the case should settle for, but we did not get it resolved on that either. And so the case went to verdict. There was the verdict that you, that you have described of $109 million. Uh, incidentally, the case settled seven weeks later for $105 million. So they, they paid nearly the entire verdict. Oh, that's great. Uh, and, and but I continued to, to pursue them with respect to remediation and with the Public Utility Commission, who now having been publicly embarrassed, was after them on the issue. And of course, the embarrassment was even greater after the verdict. Uh, that received a lot, a lot of publicity across Pennsylvania. So the, the PUC eventually entered into an agreement with the power company exactly along the lines that I had demanded of the power company, which is they have to go out and inspect all the power lines, they have to fix the ones that are burning hot, fix the splices, wire brush the lines where they weren't wire brushed, and then also reinspect them uh, in three years. And that was, that was important. And the people who are listening to this broadcast ought to think about those who are lawyers and those who are law students ought to be thinking about what's the appropriate role for a plaintiff's lawyer in a case like this. And I don't think it's limited to financial compensation for your client. I think it's important to figure out what went wrong systemically and to demand that the defendant reform themselves Uh, and to contact the government where the government has an oversight function and to make them do their jobs. And if people have to be embarrassed along the line in order to get in order to get the job done, okay, so be it. As it worked out with the Public Utility Commission, uh, after uh, there was that embarrassing story about their failure to pursue the issue, they became very responsive. They brought that legal action. They required the remediation by the power line. They then established a new department within the Public Utility Commission to vigorously investigate uh, any injury or death related to a, a down power line. Wow. Uh, another line came down in Eastern Pennsylvania uh, more recently. A young man was killed and they did a uh, terrific job in investigating that promptly and effectively. So that's the kind of thing that if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you can feel good about, uh, you know, sure the financial compensation is meaningful for the client or, an award to punish is meaningful, but the client also gets a tremendous amount of of sustenance and good feeling out of knowing that they're making other people's lives safer and the lawyer does too. So I, I think it's important that we all look at our cases and say, hey, should we be doing more here than just seeking financial compensation?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, that's that, that's a great example of, uh, of where you can do more for society as a whole than just your client. It's always great to help your clients. Uh, and I just have to say, I mean, your uh, clients, um, uh, Mike and his family, uh, that was, you know, incredibly courageous of them to, uh, I'm sure, turn down what was probably a, a large settlement offer in order to keep pushing for safety measures and to take the case to trial and to... Um, and to make sure that, uh, that the public heard about it. So that's um, that, that's uh, really good by both you and by them.
0: They, they turned down $40 million during the trial of the case. $40 yeah. million dollars was offered and it was turned down. And again, for the lawyers who are listening, uh, there aren't a whole lot of uh, individual cases for plaintiffs where there's an award of anything like $40 million. That's but right. Mike Goretzka's attitude was that his wife had passed away through the through the recklessness of the power company, and he wanted to hear uh, a jury verdict from the jury. Uh, unless they paid him fifty million dollars, and unless they undertook very meaningful reform, they weren't willing to pay fifty million. They'd pay forty million, and they weren't willing to agree to the reform that that, that, that we wanted. And we came close, as I say, but right. we didn't we didn't quite get there.
1: Well, yeah, and that's, that is uh, great. And I, and I hope, you know, I know how hard this is, or I don't, I can't say I know how hard it is for the family, but I mean, they, uh, you know, obviously got a great result and I hope that they are uh, getting uh, some semblance of their, of their uh, lives back. And I I know it uh, profoundly affected, especially the daughters, uh, which you did a great job during your closing or in in during your opening describing how this had affected them. They actually saw uh, their mother uh, being burned and, um, and then, um, uh, it was to the point that, uh, that Mike uh, had to sleep on the floor in their room every night and, uh, and couldn't leave because they didn't want to be alone and had a fear of losing him as well.
2: Um, related, yeah. I'm yes. I'm sorry, I didn't, I don't mean to cut you off, um, Shannon, but related to, related to the daughters, how did you um, handle them at, at trial? Did you have you know, did the jury get to see them? Did you, did you just have other family members talk about them?
0: Yeah, good question. So they were old enough by the time of trial to testify if I had decided to call them to testify, but I thought that was unnecessary. And I thought that that would be painful for them to talk about missing their mother uh, in a courtroom uh, for young women at that point in time. I mean, Chloe, Chloe, uh, at that point, was eight, and Carly was six, and that would have been an ordeal for them. So what I did instead was I had them come to court one day and sit with their grandmother, and when, when uh, grandma testified, she introduced uh, uh, her granddaughters to the jury. They stood up. Uh, they were sitting there with their father, and I thought that was sufficient. And then they left the courtroom they didn't need to to hear anything else. Right. And I think that's, that's sufficient. I think it's so easy for we plaintiff's lawyers to overdo it. And this wasn't a case uh, to overdo it. There was another aspect of a a similar nature. There were of course photographs of Carrie's injuries. They were uh, so gruesome and the judge after a hearing argument, determined to admit uh, three photographs, and I just did not want to show them to the jury because uh, they were so gruesome, and I thought some of the jurors would would be repulsed and might hold it against my clients for putting mm-hmm. them through the agony of having to see the photographs. So I had them on the the witness stand with the medical expert, so he could talk about the nature of the injuries by him looking at the photos as they were in front of him. But of course the jury's not seeing them and they're not on a screen. So you lose some significant effect there. And then what I did was I, I, put, I, I, I moved the photos into evidence. And of course they were admitted after the argument was over. And then I put the photos in an envelope and I left the envelope with the court officer. And in the closing speech, I said to the jury, You know, there are these photographs, there are three of them. You know, they've been admitted to evidence. You know, I did not show them to you because I did not want to cause those of you who find it to be too gruesome to look at these photos to have your own injury in that way. And so uh, if you want to see the photographs, you may see them. Just ask the judge to have them sent out and they'll be sent out to you. And then those of you who want to see the photographs may look at them. And those of you who don't want to look at them don't have to look at them. And you could discuss their contents with your fellow jurors if you don't want to look at them. But I said, I think that you ought to ask for the photos. Because at least some of you ought to look at them. So you can understand what Carrie Goretzka went through. You can understand the injuries. And only the photographs allow you to have a full understanding of them. But I don't want to overly impose on any of you. So if you don't want to look at the pictures, you don't have to. And again, I I hope that struck the right balance between making the points you have to make for your clients without uh, a a backlash potential or an issue about overdoing it. And uh, I I think that was a reasonable compromise. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but I, I think it's a way that folks listening to this ought to think about.
1: Yeah, it brings up a great point. I, I mean, I, I did want to hear, it. so did the jury ask for them from the judge?
0: The jury did ask for them from the judge, and of course, I had worked it out beforehand. I said to the judge, I want to talk about the photos in my closing. I want to say to them that they can ask for them. I want to be sure that if they do ask for them, Your Honor, that you'll give them to them. He said, of course, they were in evidence. So that was all clear beforehand. And uh, they did ask for them. And, um, I later learned from one of the jurors that they had them in deliberation. They rendered the verdict and then they opened the envelope. I don't know why they did it that way. I'm not even sure that that's what happened. I heard it from one juror. Right. Um, And, but I think perhaps the presence of the photos in deliberation, even though they didn't look at them, was important. Uh, Just to know that the envelope was there and there were the pictures. Just as a symbol of what of what of what were the injuries, and I think that may have been important i mean you can 't know for sure, yeah, but I think when you 're trying a case, you have to be sensitive to all the considerations, and you, you shouldn't impose harm on anyone unnecessarily
2: well an- another thing i liked about i like about the way you describe doing that is it's it seems like another way you empowered the jury um but one of the other ways i noticed that you had done that i can't remember if it was during your open or your close but where you had shown them the wire brush that they're supposed to use instead of the back of a knife or pliers or whatever to, to to clean the lines and you were telling them about why that mattered and how many bristles were on the the brush but you but you were also saying to them you know you don't have to, to take my word for it, you'll have it back there. Look at it, and you can see for yourself.
0: Yes, did you get to find out the what wire- the
2: jury did with that?
0: Uh, the jury's view was that it didn't matter why the line fell. But it was a clear sunny day. The wire brushing was irrelevant. They accepted the race proposition, but my approach was a belt and suspenders because you just don't know. And perhaps if I had not presented the explanation of what happened, they may have thought differently. It's not intuitive that you have to uh, wire brush a power line when you connect it. Yes, it's in the owner's manual. Yes, it's uh, it's in the manual for the splices. Uh, the, the, the linemen had been told by their trainers that it's okay to use a knife to, to, to just scrape it against the, the power line. Uh, you don't have to use a wire brush. And look, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a lineman. What do I know about this? But it just seems intuitively to be inadequate when you think about, for example, brushing your teeth. Everybody yeah. brushes their teeth. Everybody uses that kind of brush. So uh, Steve, you and, you and I don't don't use a hairbrush, but uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but we do use a toothbrush. And would we clean our teeth with a knife? No, I don't think so. I don't think we would we would use the edge of a knife to scrape along our teeth and think that would be adequate to clean our teeth. That's why we use a brush. And analogously, you need a wire brush for a power line. I think you need to have explanations like that yeah. when you try a case so that everybody gets it, because not many folks in the jury are gonna get it otherwise.
1: Right, right.
0: Although, although we had an exceptionally, an exceptionally intelligent jury, uh, the jury foreman uh, was the director of research and development at Kenny Metal, which is a Fortune 500 company in Western Pennsylvania that is a manufacturing concern which makes metal products for industry. So of course a power line is a metal product for industry. And this was a a fellow who had a PhD in mechanical engineering. He was head of R&D for Kenny Metal. If you you had tried to find the 10 most qualified people in Pennsylvania to sit in judgment on a case (laughs) like this, he would be on your list of 10. And I thought we should have him on the jury because I didn't know what they were going to try to say by way of why the line fell or what have you. And I wanted to have a, a very intelligent person on the jury who was trained in an allied field. Uh, there was also um, a, there was also a, a man that was an HVAC mechanic, and that's somebody else who, for a living, deals with, deals with metal products. He didn't have a PhD. I don't think he needed a PhD. But again, I think it's important that, that we have jurors who are plenty smart uh, and that's a bulwark against some sort of an arbitrary outcome or a non-meritorious defense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They probably became some of your greatest advocates in the, uh, in the jury room cause they, you know, he could talk about how important a metal brush or using a, a brush on something like that was. And it uh, reminds me of a case cause you know, a lot of times you go against conventional wisdom and who should be on your jury Uh, and, and I had a case where I left a CEO of a steel company on the jury and, uh, I I was worried about him, but he ended up being great. So sometimes you can never, um, never tell exactly, uh, uh, you know, who's going to be your best jurors and who's, uh, and who's not. And, And that's a great example of, uh, of someone who could, when they, I mean, I'm sure they tried to come in at some point and say that using a knife was good enough and he could explain how it's not. And obviously you knew it wasn't because it fell.
0: Yes, that's right. That, that you're, you're right. And you're going back to Ray race. The, the right. thing spoke for itself. The line fell for a reason having to do with the way it was installed or maintained or both. And so, but again, I think it's important to give folks an explanation as to why.
1: Yeah, I and I I agree with that. And I think you have to. uh, But I did love the way that you going back to that race Ipsa argument for a second. I love the way you use that in closing, because um, you were you know telling the jury, like, look, this is so obvious that, you know, I shouldn't have to come in here with all this evidence. I shouldn't have to show this because it's it's obvious to everybody. But um, but I'm not going to do that. You know, so it's a so. On the one hand, you know, you're you're telling them, "Look, this is so obvious; you should find for me," but that I'm not going to do that. Uh, and I just, I, I, I love the way you use that and the way that it, it came across to the jury and uh, and really brought home the points of uh, how obvious this was that it, that it should be a slam dunk, even though you weren't going to play like it was a slam dunk.
0: Correct.
2: Right. And and Correct. related related to that, I like that you you know, after, after starting with the big picture, the race up stuff and saying, you know, I could have stopped there, but I didn't, I, you know, we, we dug into the cause of why this happened, but then you went even further than that, because then you started talking about the different measures um, as far as um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the right terms for this, but, as, but, but the, the different measures that that could be taken so that the power to the line would be shut off the, the fault or grounding or yeah. <laughs> none of my right, high school right. science teachers are listening.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. That was a subsidiary theory of the case that the power should have shut off when the line became disengaged uh, from the splice. Uh, again, unnecessary, but more proof, and more proof of outrageous conduct by the power company. Uh, and listen, this, this is what we see right now in California. Um, uh-huh. Of course, California wasn't part of this case, <laughs> but we see these power lines falling in California and they uh, do not de-energize when they fall. Uh, they're still alive, they start fires. and we've seen what's happening as a result. It's absolutely catastrophic. What's been happening in California for the last several years? And yeah. uh, uh, That should not be happening for a couple of reasons. They should keep the vegetation away from the lines. Uh, so that when there's a high wind and a tree blows into the line, it doesn't cause a line to fall. And the line should be energized when they fall. But regrettably, they don't.
2: This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS.
1: Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom, and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked?
2: No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS.
1: Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology. Whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury, these are the experts.
2: They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves. They get what a deposition involves. And you can use them to make your life a lot easier.
1: They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by The Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com.
2: Yeah, I, I I, think, I, I mean, that's why I, I was so excited to talk about this case because I I think I, you read it and I think I would be the person who would go outside with my cell phone to call 911. and, And I, you know, when I was reading this kind of, where they were saying, she could see the line and she walked into the line or touched it with her arm. Or I, I was sort of thinking like, so what? I mean, I understand right. how you were able to prove that that didn't happen, but I, I was like, so what?
0: Like this should yeah, never happen.
1: Still shouldn't be there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, and, and I was also thinking about this and, and, and you mentioned it with, I mean, you had evidence that she hadn't done that because when Joanne tried to walk up to her, she got, forced back so obviously it hadn't been on the ground and she had just walked up to it or else she would have gotten uh, thrown back like Joanne had uh,
0: yes uh, I'm not completely sure of that because uh, Joanne was thrown back but whether somebody else would have been thrown back who knows I didn't want to I didn't want to die on that hill right right, right. Uh, <laughs> and and um, it, 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 it it was pretty obvious what happened. There was other eyewitness testimony about the line falling out of the tree subsequent to its initial fall. So uh, it wasn't totally clear testimony, but there was a a mailman in the area who saw it fall uh, after it had fallen initially. So there was that too. Um, But I, tried to avoid creating any areas of dispute because I did not want the case to boil down to some collateral issue. Um, right. And uh, yeah, Joanne was thrown backwards and that, that, was, uh, that was an important aspect also with respect to her damages. And one thing I would note for, for your, your viewers is that uh, just a couple of things about Joanne's case. Joanne was the mother-in-law again of, of Gary Garenska. And we made two claims for her. One was that she was injured herself because she was, her fingers were burned when she tried to approach and and rescue her daughter-in-law. But that wasn't that severe an injury. Her her fingers healed. Um, The more significant injury was the uh, mental anguish from watching the injury being sustained by... A, a close loved one. And in Pennsylvania, as in many states, uh, exactly how close a relative you have to be in order to maintain a claim for witnessing their injury is not entirely clear. The, the, you know, sure, yes, if it's a, a sister or a parent or a child yes but what about a mother-in-law and they the power company filed a motion to exclude those types of damages in the case uh, arguing that she w- that was not a close enough relation and they concede of course that if if, if uh joanne had been carrie's mother that there would have been a close enough connection but not with her being mother-in-law So when the argue when the argument occurred on that motion. I said, judge, I I have a a very brief rebuttal to the argument that she's not a close enough relative Uh, Very brief judge. Here's what it is. Uh, Joanne was carries mother in law. (laughs) <laughs> I like and i that. sat down and i sat down <laughs> i like
1: that. that's and, great and, and that was that yeah no that that's was great. that <laughs> that was it
0: mother mother in law
1: that's yeah. a i that's mean great. yeah exactly and, and i mean yeah so in in the law she's the mother uh yeah no, i love that Um, Well, you know, and and in Georgia, you know, because we face those same types of things. I mean, I I don't know if Pennsylvania has the physical impact rule, but we would have argued that she suffered a physical impact and therefore can, uh, you know, also recover for negligent infliction of emotional distress.
0: Yes, for her injury. Right. But then there's the separate question of her grief from witnessing the injury to her daughter-in-law. And that, I think, is the bigger claim.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Uh, definitely.
0: Right, so that that's what kind of I wanted to preserve. The other part about that's worth talking about. You think about oh, 109 million dollar verdict. Maybe the jury went wild. Well, not really. I mean, they awarded uh, they they awarded uh, Joanne a million dollars for uh, her burn and for witnessing her daughter-in-law's excruciating death. And that's that's a that's a modest award. They awarded the children for witnessing their mother's death and for the loss of of uh, guidance and support and tutelage. They awarded the children four million dollars. I thought those were modest verdicts. I mean, yeah. they weren't tiny, but but they weren't they weren't huge. Yeah. Uh, they they I brought the verdict slip with me for this conversation. Uh, they they uh, they awarded uh, twenty nine million dollars for character with economic loss, which are probably around four million. So they awarded 25 million for her pain, suffering, and disfigurement. Right. That's for the 20 minutes of being shocked by the power line, and then 25 more minutes before she was rendered unconscious. 25 million dollars for that. And that may seem like a lot, but I don't need to explain to you, to your viewers that uh, none of us w- would accept five seconds of 7,200 volts no, right. for any amount of money. Right. Uh, much much less. Uh, 45 minutes. So I thought that that the jury was very temperate in their approach. They awarded $61 million to punish the company. And they got to that calculation uh, because that represented 25% of the net worth of the company. The company was a small utility as utilities go and uh, just covered, covered Southwest Pennsylvania. And uh, only had a net worth of $264 million, which might sound like a lot, but really isn't for a public utility. And uh, they, they, they were really concerned, the jury was really concerned about the power companies uh, conduct and their lack of acceptance of responsibility. And so they awarded what I thought was an unusually high percentage of the net worth of the company, 25%.
1: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about this because it looks like uh, from the verdict form that this was all of these questions, including the punitive damages, were tried in the uh, in your uh, primary case, meaning it wasn't bifurcated. In Georgia, we would have to bifurcate uh, the punitive damages to a, a second. Uh, um, uh, Trial, essentially, um, and I was I was wondering. So, d- you were able to put in during your um, during your case what the net worth of the company was because you were asking for punitive damages as well.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a minute, Steve, because there's a couple yeah. of aspects here. The okay. first is is that the judge said that he was going to reserve the decision about whether to permit damages to punish to go to the jury until he heard all the evidence. It was only only at the end. But he said he would let the claim go to the jury and then we could, could introduce the net worth. Okay. I told the defendants that I would leave it up to them about whether to bifurcate the, the, the punitive damages liability and amount or whether to, uh, excuse me, the punitive damage amount or whether to have it be in the case in chief. And you might, you might be asking yourself, why would I do that? Why wouldn't either? I want to bifurcate it, bifurcated or I want a part of the part of the entire case. And the reason is, is that this is an exceptionally sensitive issue in the case law, and I don't want to retry the case on the issue yeah. of whether there's bifurcation or not. And I don't think it makes any difference. I tried a lot of product liability cases, uh, in, in other cases involving punitive damages, and I you can war game this, to, to, you know, forever. And I don't think there is really any clear indication that it matters whether you bifurcated or not. And I wanted to have no legal issues such right. as this that, that could cause the case to be retried. So I just said to the defendants, it's up to you. You want it bifurcated, you don't want it bifurcated. You decide. Yeah. And they decided to have it not bifurcated. And the reason why they did that, and they didn't tell me, but I know the thinking, is that some defendants believe that if The consideration is not bifurcated that what will happen is, is that the jury will end up punishing the defendant through their verge of compensate. And then they're told when they check the box on outrageous conduct, yes, oh, now you have to come back and consider how much to punish the company. So then there will be a second whack at punishment. Uh, and that would end up being a larger total amount than if the jury simply considered all the issues together. That's the conventional wisdom for why a defendant might not want uh, bifurcation. Uh, who knows? Yeah. And you know, so the jury awarded sixty-one million dollars here. That seemed to me to be high. I might say high. I don't mean high, excessive as a matter of law, but just unusually high. Twenty-five percent of, of net worth. But the jury obviously felt that the this is the amount that the company had to be assessed in order to, to punish and deter that kind of behavior.
2: Does it um, I know in Pennsylvania, at least for the compensatory damages, you're not permitted to suggest a, a specific number to the jury. Is is it um, I guess two questions. Number one, can you talk a little bit about that? Because se- some of our listeners and, and lawyers come from places where you can suggest a number, and the issue is, what do you suggest? Can you talk a little bit about, number one, how you handle damages knowing that you can't suggest a specific number, and then also, as, if whether that applies to punitive damages as well?
0: It is correct that you can't suggest a number that is specific, either for damages to compensate for damages to punish in Pennsylvania. That's the rule in many states, and of course, in some states, you may. I've tried cases in some of those states. And I've been reluctant to suggest an amount, even in states when I can make that suggestion. Uh, I know the theory on why you want to do it, uh, but I have concerns about doing it. I think that uh, you may anchor the verdict too low, and, and, or you may offend some jurors. Uh, it's not clear to me that it's advantageous to do it, even if you can. On your question of how do you get them to an appropriate number without being able to suggest one, let me offer some observations first. You, of course, can talk about economic damages, such as loss of earning capacity. We had those numbers. They were in a range of about 2 to $4 million. I said to the jury in describing those damages that that's the tip of the iceberg for this case. Well, that's not suggesting an amount, but some people know that, uh, what is it? 7 8 of the iceberg is underwater, right. and 1 of the iceberg is the tip above right. the water. It's something like that. It gives people some sense of the matter. On Carrie Goretz's pain and suffering, uh, we knew that she was continuously shocked for 20 minutes. So what I said to the jury was, okay, 20 minutes is um, 1200 seconds, right? Uh, 20 times 60. I said, let's just forget about 1200 seconds for a minute. Let's imagine a person being shocked with 7,200 volts for 12 seconds, 12 seconds, 12 seconds. What's the right amount to compensate that person for that harm, okay? You pick the number and then we'll apply it by 100. Yeah. Because <laughs> 12 seconds is one hundredth of 1200 seconds.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. That's permissible. Yeah. I think that's a way to do it. So I did that also. Let's talk about the damages to punish. So here's what I said about that. I said, the the power company has a net worth of $264 million. None of us deal with those numbers on a daily basis. That's not a number that has any meaning to most of us. I put the number 264,000,000 on a whiteboard in front of the jury, and I said to the jury, Let's put that number aside, and let's assume that somebody acted as horribly as this company acted and caused the death of Carrie Baratska as occurred here, and instead of being worth millions of dollars, they were worth $10, $10, that's what they're worth. What is the appropriate amount? to take from them to punish and deter them for this conduct when they're worth $10. I took out a $10 bill and I put it on the jury rail. And I said, you you might award, you might think about, excuse me, you might think about whether a penny would be sufficient. A penny. I took out a penny, I put it next to the $10 bill. What would someone Say who's worth ten million dollars, who's acted like this and caused this death, who's been punished one penny on this type of conduct. Uh, they would they would brush the award off their shoulder like lint. Uh, a, a penny on ten dollars is the same as two hundred sixty-four thousand on two hundred sixty-four million. Imagine you were to award uh, a dime. Again, a person worth $10 exactly like this, who's punished with a dime being taken from them, would also brush it off their shoulder like lint. I took a dime out of my pocket and put it next to a penny. Uh, a dime is 1% of $10. Uh, 1% of 200 $64 million is $2.64 million. And of course, I'm putting these numbers up on the board. One-tenth of one percent equals this. One percent equals that. And let's say that you took from the company a dollar. Uh, they're worth $10. We take a dollar from them. I took a dollar bill, put it next to the dime, next to the pay, next to the $10 bill. You punish someone with 10% of their net worth. They're going to start to listen. Is that adequate? That's up to you. But what I suggest you do is you don't think about it in terms of $264 million. You think about it in terms of $10. What is the right amount to take from that person who's worth $10? And then just do the math. And so they decided 25%. Yeah. They decided 25%. They did the math, $61 million. And uh, I've done that before. I think it's an effective way of dealing with, with these large numbers. And to get the jury to understand that you have to punish someone with a a lot of money if they're worth a lot of money. Uh, My law partner, Tom Klein, got a verdict uh, a few weeks ago of $8 billion in a personal injury case against Johnson & Johnson involving a product called Risperdal. And of course, you have all this sort of national attention about that verdict. And a lot of people around the country saying, oh, my goodness, $8 billion, that's absurd, that's way too much money, and and the like. And the important thing to think about with a verdict like that is, excuse me, what is the net worth of the company? With Johnson & Johnson, the net worth is $61 billion. Now, if a company is worth $610,000, or a person is worth $610,000, and they act maliciously, and they cause a horrible injury or a death, and there is an assessment of $80,000 to punish them and deter them. Nobody is going to draw a heavy breath about whether that's too high, 80,000 on 610,000. If you act like that, sounds about right. But then we we panic when we hear about an $8 billion reward and a $61 billion net worth in the company. We shouldn't be panicking. In fact, what we should be doing is saying, yes, that's the only way to get the company to pay attention because with Johnson & Johnson, we see this over and over again with their behavior. If not Risperdal, it's talc. If not talc, it's opioids. If if, if, um, if not opioids, it's transvaginal mesh. They're facing 103,000 personal injury cases involving a couple of dozen separate lines of products. It's a company that's lost its way. It's ineffectively governed. I've seen the documents of these cases. Of course, the jury is going to find against someone appealing to damage claim but they're not being deterred by an award of $5 million or $10 million or $20 million. The company makes nets $11 billion a year. Right. Nets $11 billion a year, how to get them to behave responsibly. So it takes a substantial verdict. And I think one thing that was good about the Goretzka case is they did award a substantial portion of the, of the net worth of the company. And you know what happened? The company paid right. the company paid. And, and they've been deterred, at least through uh, the PUC's action and their own action, and I think it's a safer company now than it was. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, because not only did they pay, but the, you also it, were able to enact this, uh, you know, inspection, you know, across all their lines, which is, uh, you know, helping everybody. And uh, they actually did do something.
0: Yes,
1: exactly. Well, um, Shannon, this has been uh, just a, a great discussion, and um, and uh, we've taken a ton of your time. But I just wanted to make sure: is there anything else about the Goretzka trial that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure uh, our listeners have uh, have heard about?
0: No, I think anybody who's still hanging in there with the three of us <laughs> should be
1: connected. Right, exactly. <laughs> no,
0: I did. But if anybody. But if anybody does have a question, no, seriously, (laughs) I I do want to mention one other thing, which is that I'm devoted to the the teaching of law students. And and, uh, American legal education is very important to me. I just came from teaching evidence at Penn today to take part in this discussion with you. And I teach at Hastings and, and Berkeley and Stanford, where I'll be returning in January. And I think it's important that folks have access to information about this. So- if any of your listeners are law students or lawyers, defense lawyers or plaintiff's lawyers, I'm happy to hear from them to answer their questions and, and the like. This, as you noted, this case, or I'm not sure you did, you did note this, but this case was the subject of a book called Danger Above. Okay. And, uh, that, and, that, and that book is a very good primer on how to try a case like this and how to discover a case like this. Happy to make that available to, to your viewers and happy to answer any questions and be of assistance.
1: That's yeah, well, that, that is fantastic. Um, Yvonne, do you, I thought you had- I did, I did. Oh. I know,
2: I, I feel like I've totally dominated this podcast with all no. these many questions that I had. But um, I, I did want to ask you quickly, I know you've done other cases um, like this one um, against public utilities, but I, I noticed that one of the the things that had come up in your opening and your closing was talking about the, privi- the, the defendant's privilege of doing business. Um, and I was wondering if that, I, th- I found that very effective and I was wondering if that was a theme that you use in, in all your cases or in cases beyond the public utility context or if it's one you've just found effective in this context.
1: Well, and we should also mention that you mentioned that it's a, it was a heightened standard for, uh, for uh, the public utility, the, the highest degree of care, uh, which also uh, was, was uh, very effective.
0: Yeah. You, you, uh, the two of you, uh, read everything that we supplied and (laughs) we tried to (laughs) uh, and, and, uh, have done a great job of, of, uh, repeating it back to me. I do not ordinarily talk about the privilege of doing business, but in the case of the public utility, it's different because let's think about that for a second. First, as Steve, as you note, a public utility that, that, transmits electric power has a duty to undertake the highest degree of care. So that is the law in Pennsylvania and in most states. That's point number one. Point number two, they are a monopoly. Yeah. There's no way to compete with them. So when they are granted a license by the Public Utility Commission to transmit power for that geographical region of the state, it's an exclusive power. that 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 means something special for them because unless they are properly governed, and unless the civil justice system and the regulatory system oversees them appropriately, that monopoly would be a license essentially to uh, act in an immune manner where they could be reckless, hurt people, and they could not have any effect on their business model. So it's very important with a public utility that everybody understand that there are a different set of ground rules. Highest degree of care, they have a monopoly. There has to be extra vigilance by the by the civil justice system and by the regulatory system to deal with uh their errors. And so that's why I talked about it in those terms. And I think that's compelling. Uh and so but I wouldn't talk about that uh, certainly not with respect to a motorist. Uh (laughs) I mean, I know it's a privilege to operate a motor vehicle, but we don't really think of it that way. I I know you have to be licensed to operate a motor vehicle, but we don't really think about it that way. Uh, Sometimes I talk about something akin to that in a medical malpractice case. I'll I'll talk about uh, the privilege of of being able to uh, interpose yourself in the personal health care of someone else and how that. Involve special responsibilities and i think that strikes a a familiar chord in people's minds particularly if, if the person is a surgeon okay. but with the, with the public utility it's amplified yeah absolutely yeah.
1: You know, one, one other thing now that I'm thinking about it, uh, I wanted to make sure to mention. Uh, and and by the way, I mean, uh, if, if anybody can uh, read uh, the book that uh, Shannon has mentioned or read the opening and closing that he gave in this case. I mean, it's just a, a, a masterwork. But I, I, I really liked how uh, in your closing that you... Um, um, you know, you always thank the jury for their time, but you really went beyond that and said, you know, it's really an honor for you to sit here and do, you know, this most important work. And, and you've gotten the the honor to sit here for these last three and a half weeks or, or four weeks. And really uh, I, I just thought the the way you spoke about um, the power of the jury and, and what they were doing in that case and how it was, it was really, um, you know, what they were doing was so important and such an honor to to be able to take part in the system. Uh was really empowering and just really, really good uh the way you talked to the jury.
0: Steve, I barely thanked them. It's the truth of the matter. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I I said to them, I said, I know that I'm supposed to thank you. Uh all all lawyers thank the juries in their closing speeches for their service and so I do that here. But the truth of the matter is is that I envy you. Right. Because you get to decide this case and what an what an important matter this is. So so I, I think that 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 does a couple of things, doesn't it? I mean, it, it reminds them of how important the matter is. And it's not patronizing. I, I think right. this thanking the jury stuff can, can be too syrupy. And it doesn't strike me as really being the appropriate thing to say in a case like that. Uh, may I comment to you that yeah. last week, last week I was invited to the Federalist Society in Philadelphia for the Third Circuit Conference of the Federal Society members to debate the question of whether the right to trial by jury should be abrogated. There is a law professor at George Washington University who has written extensively uh, arguing that we should uh, get rid of the right to trial by jury in civil cases. Uh, That of course would involve changing the constitution and it would involve uh, sandblasting uh, courthouse Cornerstones and all sorts of things, where where the right to trial by jury has been emblazoned as one of the core democratic values of our nation. But of course, it would provide work for stonemasons and sandblasters. So perhaps right. it'd be that, uh, <laughs> that that benefit. But but one of the things that this law professor argued is that jury duty is a burden on jurors and it's not a fair burden to take them away from their daily occupations and and, and, and daily lives. And I made the point to the, to the group that no one who's sat on a jury thinks that. Uh, people who sit on juries walk away saying, invariably, this was a tremendous experience in their lives and they were honored to have done it and they felt they played an important role in resolving an important dispute, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case, whatever the nature of the case is, people who are juries totally get it. And they believe in the jury system. So, uh, yeah, there's some commentary in the academic world about getting rid of juries. Uh, I don't think that's the way it really works in real life.
1: Right. Exactly. And, you know, and most, uh, you know, uh, judges and, and, and lawyers, you know, right now are, are saying how not enough cases are getting to a jury uh, and there's not enough cases being tried. Uh, and, that, and that's probably true. I mean, it's definitely gone down over the years uh, of how many cases actually uh, go to a jury.
0: Yes. And, and on that subject, you know, this case could have been settled. Yeah. And a lot of money was offered but think about the importance that this case went to verdict. Think about the importance of this podcast and that there'd be discussion about the nature of these farms and the importance of their deterrence and the importance of safety, particularly in the transmission of electric power. And think about the importance to the community in Western Pennsylvania of having this verdict announced. And the importance to the Gretzka family of hearing the jury foreman intone the verdict. They'll never forget that moment in their lives. They can't replace Carrie Gretzky's life, but to have the moment where there was that intonation is something that will stay with them always. So there are all of these important reasons why we lawyers uh, ought to be more committed to jury trials and not being anxious to settle. A, A settlement is a compromise that robs the public and others of important yeah, information. Yeah.
1: Well, this has been uh, such a pleasure, really, Shannon, And and, uh, and just hearing about the uh, tremendous work you did not only for this family, uh, but did for uh, Pennsylvania and, and have been doing uh, uh, your whole career. So uh, I just want to remind all of our listeners that we have been talking to Shane Inspector. Uh, he is a partner at Client Inspector in uh, Philadelphia, also with offices in New York, New Jersey, Delaware, and in, uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and I, I failed to do this at the beginning, Shannon, so I apologize, uh, but I want to make sure that if anybody wants to, to uh, look up Shannon or read about him, you can go to Kleinspector.com. that's K-L-I-N-E-S-P-E-C-T-E-R.com, Kleinspector.com. Shannon, this has been uh, really just a pleasure, and we really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much to both of you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to The Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with, or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, uh, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we've we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our great trials podcast.com, as well as a, a glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> we only need a uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um,